It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After this episode, go to ChristianQuestions.com to check out our other episodes, Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more. Today's topic is, what does God's grace do for us? Coming up in this episode, God's grace is amazing. It's talked about all over the New Testament and is described in all kinds of different ways. We know God's grace has everything to do with having his favor, but how does it work? How does his grace change us? Here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years, and Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for this episode? 1 Corinthians 1, 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is full of examples of God's love, justice, wisdom, power, and plan. It is a fountain of mercy and foresight, and it is a treasure trove of prophecy. Understanding the magnitude of all these things helps us see God as the sovereign creator and father that he really is. But wait, there's more. Running through all of the descriptions we just mentioned is another facet of God's character. It is his grace. The word for grace in the Bible has many shades of meaning. When we understand how this word is applied to God in both the Old and New Testaments, we're given a profound glimpse into the depth and breadth of his character. God's grace is and always has been a game changer. Let's see how. This study of grace is, 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 is huge. And the word is, it, it's, it gives you a, a very broad sense of things. As we were going to see, the, the, the word for grace in the Hebrew and Greek languages have many, many, many variations. And this is where we really want to start. We're going to put them all on the table, if, if you will, to take a look at the, uh, how to understand the meaning and application, especially in relation to God. So, Jonathan, let's look at the Old and New Testament words for grace. Well, the Hebrew word means graciousness, that is, subjective kindness, favor, or objective beauty. And in the Hebrew lexicon, the word means favor, charm, elegance, acceptance. So you've got a lot of different things going on there. You've got this kindness, but then you also have elegance and charm. It's like, well, that's a, that's a, lots, a lot of different things for one word. Same thing in the New Testament. Jonathan, what do we have in the New Testament? Well, the Greek word for grace means graciousness, a manner or act. And in the Greek English lexicon, the first definition for grace is that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, grace of speech. The second definition, goodwill, loving kindness, favor. And the third, what is Due to grace, the spiritual condition of one governed by the power of divine grace. Many have said that the Old Testament, Rick, is full of the harshness of the law, while the New Testament is filled with God's grace. And actually, the Old Testament introduces God's grace in many powerful ways. We're going to look at a few examples, but before we do, there's something interesting in the Old Testament with the word for grace, which is charis in the Greek, and the Septuagint 
is the first ever translation of the Hebrew Bible. It goes from Hebrew into Greek. And we know that the Apostle Paul quoted from it because it was popular in his day and some scriptures we can we can trace where they're from. And in the Septuagint, the Greek New Testament word charis is also how they translated the Hebrew word. So in the Septuagint, it's charis in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you have a direct link from Hebrew, the Hebrew language to the Greek language. So when you hear the word in Hebrew, you know it means exactly the same thing in Greek. That's important as we look at this. We're going to take a look at a few examples of the word for grace or favor. And at first, the very first time it appears in the scriptures is in relation to Noah. Uh, Jonathan, let's go to Genesis 6, 8. From the King James Version, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So that word favor is that that Hebrew word for favor is the same as the Greek word for, for grace. Those are the exact same thing. God's grace was applied to Noah when humanity was on the brink of destruction because he found favor and God gives him instructions literally to save the world. Now the very next use of grace in the Old Testament is related to Abraham giving hospitality to angels. And remember, these angels came to Abraham to deliver a very important, very specific message about, about his, his, uh, his wife becoming pregnant in, in, in old age. Genesis 18, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day, when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. So he, Abraham says to these angels, essentially, my Lord, if I am the subject of your grace, and remember they're the direct representatives of God himself, he's the subject of their grace, or God's grace. God's grace here was applied to Abraham when these three angels visited and told him of Isaac's birth. Interestingly, Isaac as the promised seed was a picture of the one who was to save the world. Now this is going to come into play in a few minutes, so hang on to that thought for a moment. One other example of the word for grace in the Old Testament, uh, later in the Old Testament we see the psalmist writing of the magnitude of God's grace. This is a, this is just a wonderful, inspiring scripture. Psalms 84, verses 8 to 12. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a shield and sun, and the Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. God's grace is mentioned here. The Lord gives grace and glory, but it's in the context of a broader description. The Lord is a sun and a shield. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God's grace is described in the context of his loving protection and his life-giving light. The word grace is found over 60 times in the Old Testament and more than 150 times in the New Testament. The New Testament introduces God's grace even more powerfully as it begins with Mary. Now, we will uh, be reading the next several verses in Luke from the King James Version. 
Luke 1, 28 through 30. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. So you have a couple of times that that word favor is used from the angel Gabriel to Mary. And it's showing a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous opportunity and unmerited gift. It's, and so that's the very, very, very first time that grace is used in the New Testament. Think about this. Just, just let, Let's look at this for a minute. It's interesting to note that in the Old Testament, God's grace was first applied to Noah. Remember, we saw the word used first with Noah. Now, Noah was the one who would build the vessel, build the ark, that would carry humanity to a new opportunity for life. Now, jump to the New Testament. In the New Testament, Mary was the vessel that literally carried the Messiah who would give new life. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> it is. There's this beautiful, little, subtle connection. But wait, it gets even better, okay? Just, just hang on. The very next use of grace in the New Testament, the next uses were solely focused on Jesus. First as a baby, and then as a boy. So, Jonathan, let's go to Luke chapter 2, verse 40, and then verse 52. And the child grew, and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. Okay, so I see the parallel here. In the Old Testament, Abraham found favor with God's angels, and grace was shown to him regarding the coming of the promised seed Isaac. Here in the New Testament, grace is given to the promised seed, Jesus, after his birth. Both of these graces had to do with the seed of promise. And that's a huge comparison because, again, you had Noah and the, and the ark and Mary and the carrying of the Messiah. There's this incredible, beautiful message of God's grace that we almost never think about just by looking at the subtlety here. The next, the very next use, this, this is like the icing on the cake, the very next use of grace in the New Testament relates to, guess who? Jesus? Je absolutely. <laughs> relates to the grace of Jesus himself early in his ministry when he reads from Isaiah in the synagogue. So we saw grace related to Mary before she is, has Jesus, related to Jesus as a baby and as a boy, and now the very next use of that word for grace is about Jesus executing the ministry of God. Luke 4, 22. And all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? So the context here is Jesus just read from the familiar scriptures of Isaiah 61, 1 to 2. You know, the ones that say, The Spirit of the Lord anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and so on. So he tells them that this was fulfilled with him. And presumably he spoke more on the topic with words of favor, blessing, comfort. And God's grace was upon him, and now he becomes an expression of God's grace. John seven forty six says, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. I think, Rick and Jonathan, we're starting to see that God's grace is to be reverenced. It's not a casual, throwaway kind of word. No, and it has a very specific focus. 
in its introduction. So, so Jonathan, let, let's put all of this together because, folks, as we go through this, it only gets bigger, it only gets more dramatic, and it only gets more inspirational. But at this very beginning, at this basis where we begin, when we look at bo- God's abounding grace, Jonathan, what do we see? The biblical introduction of God's grace carries with it a simple and profound message. His grace is all about Jesus. It's like God gives us hints as to what he would say on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So you have God's grace show, pointing, Old Testament, New, New Testament, pointing to Jesus. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is one of three times that this voice comes from heaven, but we pick this because it, it says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Why listen to him? Because Julie, just like you said, he is the expression of the will of God to humanity. He makes God's will understandable because he is speaking the words of God through God's Spirit. So this is where God's grace is pointing us. We need to pay really close attention because this is where we can begin to grow its meaning in our lives. So with these Old Testament and New Testament applications of God's grace, we can see that it's an invaluable piece of his plan. With the fundamental value of God's grace established, how would we go about describing its characteristics? Well, in the New Testament, God's grace is described with a very broad brush. As we will see, His grace is weaved into His plan from its very beginning right through to its grand conclusions. Listing out several characteristics of God's grace will help us see several characteristics of God's own character in a new and bright light. So what we're going to see is His grace shows us His character. Let me make sure I understand. People do favors and nice things for each other all the time, but there's a big difference in the grace we show each other and the grace God shows to us, right? Yes, there is a major, major difference because, hey, here's an idea. God is a lot bigger than we are. Okay, so so we can pass things back and forth between us, but when God's grace comes, it comes from a, a, a source that we can't even fathom. All right, so if God's grace is something that we can't earn and we don't deserve, isn't it conditional in the fact that in order to receive or stay in God's favor, we have to be obedient? Are there maybe levels to grace, meaning like as a baseline, there's it says the scripture says there's sun and there's rain. It goes on the just and the unjust in Matthew 5, 45 and all receive a resurrection, but being obedient provides more blessings. So is there a baseline and something higher with grace? So so grace is not just this gift that comes and then just sort of sits there. For, for instance, Jonathan, you and I both like football. Yes. So let's say you gave me tickets to a New York Giants football game. And I'm like, Jonathan, that is just so awesome. What a, what a great, thoughtful <laughs> gift. What am I supposed to do with those tickets? I can, I can just sit there and look at them, but is that what you meant by giving me those tickets? It's not, is it? You wanted me to go no. to the game. Hey, how about go to the game? There's an idea, Rick, think. So grace is always an invitation to action. God's grace is always an invitation to take it and apply it. 
So it does take something from us to make God's grace have meaning. So you can have a gift, but if you don't use it, it really doesn't have meaning. That's the point of God's grace, for us to use it. And God's grace is given on all different kinds of levels in all different kinds of circumstances. So there's, there's so much to it. Matter of fact, let's go through some of the characteristics of God's grace, and this will help to, to put this in, per, in perspective. First of all, God's grace is foundational. And we're going to go through these many characteristics with one-word descriptions. The first word is foundational. God's grace is the basis for the plan of redemption. Jonathan, let's go to Hebrews 2.9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So you think about this. By the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. God's grace, his unmerited favor, created a just and loving opening for Jesus to become a man and ransom Adam for the sake of all. Now think about this for a second. It, it, God's grace creates the just and loving opening, but Jesus has to walk through that opening. That's the example. God's grace is there. We always have to do something about it. Well, it's hard to understand why so many Christians are so confused about how far-reaching Jesus' sacrifice truly is. The allness comes shining through in this verse. His, he might taste death for everyone. I like that expression, allness. That makes a lot of sense. So I heard a sermon from our friend Tom Gilbert. He's been a guest on Christian Questions before, and I picked up several quotes I thought would be relevant to our discussion. Here's the first one he said, God's grace is expressed in securing the redemption of the human race from sin and its penalty death. He sent his son who was willing to dwell among us to bring God's knowledge and wisdom to the world in a more direct and personal way and to give his life to remove the penalty of sin, death, that has claimed every member of the human family. So Jesus essentially in this, in this example is the personification of God's grace. What does God's grace look like? Well, let's look at Jesus, because it is God's gift, God's favor being unfolded. So God's grace is foundational, and it is through Jesus. Next point, God's grace is glorious, simply glorious. Let's look at Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 6. Just as he, God, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, God. In love, he, God, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, God, according to the kind intentions of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, let me reread verse 6 so we can absorb every word. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So, Julie, as you said before, sometimes it looks like we take grace and it's just one of those words that we use. And just we use it and it kind of goes by. But here, to the praise of the glory of his grace. There's this incredible glory of God's grace, which God freely bestowed on us in Jesus. There is this incredible beauty and glory in this. This is not just some little gift. This is a gift that has to do with spiritual, eternal life. This is beyond us. God's unmerited favor opened a door 
for Jesus' true disciples to have a share in heaven's glory as God's sons. God had decided on this generous favor long before Adam ever sinned. He opened the door. That's the gift of grace. What are you supposed to do? Walk through it. Can you imagine? It's so comforting to have assurance that God had a plan in place even before he created the earth. And not only would that plan include favor to the true followers of Jesus, but he foreknew sin and evil would be a consequence of free will as mankind learned right from wrong. We should be humbled to have a father whose plan is this big and based in love. And I have one more quote from Tom here. He said this, Humility in our character is the portal through which God is able to pour grace into our lives. That's really well said. I love that. Being humble, he continued, doesn't mean thinking badly about ourselves that we're terrible and worthless. Being humble is remembering that we're a member of the sin-sick human race and therefore not any better than those around us. Any higher plane that we may live on, and he's speaking of the faithful eventually being in heaven, is only because we've opened our hearts and minds to God's grace. But that grace is a free gift. We didn't earn it. We're not worthy of it. That's why it's grace. Exactly. And, you know, there's such humility expressed in those comments by Tom that is necessary to be able to actually receive and apply this glorious grace. Next point, God's grace, and these are all scriptural ways grace is described. God's grace is observable. Acts 11, 22 and 23. The news about them, those who had been scattered because of Stephen's death, reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Well, here's the thing. Barnabas didn't see the people when he arrived in Antioch. He saw God's grace. God's presence was with them. It was as though Barnabas was standing on holy ground. It was in Antioch when Jesus' disciples were first called Christians because God's grace was so observable. On a side note, this is the church where the Apostle Paul took up collections to help the Jerusalem brethren who were in financial need. This offering bonded both the Jewish and Gentile Christians together. So it's, it's a beautiful, I'm glad you brought that point out. He witnessed the grace of God, and he met the Christians as well. You know, it's because he <laughs> saw the grace being poured out of their individual and collective lives. That's what was happening. That's why God's grace is observable. It changes people. God's unmerited favor can be seen in the transformed lives of those whom he has begotten with his spirit. It's been said without grace, there are no Christians because that's the only way they exist. Now, we often ask mirror questions here on Christian Questions, and we, that's where we want to carefully examine ourselves. And here's a great question to ask in the mirror. Is God's grace observable in me? Now, serving others, for example, is one way to share God's grace in our lives because we're blessed when we serve others, but can we see God's grace in us? That's a good question. And folks, don't ask about somebody else. Ask about yourself. Is God's grace observable in me? So we've got foundational, glorious, observable. Next, God's grace is rich. Ephesians 1, 7 through 9. In him, Jesus... 
We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his, God's, grace, which he, God, lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He, God, made known to us the mystery of his, God's will, according to God's kind intention, which he, God, proposed in him, Jesus. So what we have here is according to the riches of God's grace. God's unmerited favor brings us the uncountable wealth of a forgiven life and a place in his plan. God's grace has a wealth attached to it, but it is not, and I want to repeat, it is not earthly wealth. It's not countable that way in any way, shape, or form. Mm, And how much more wealthy can you get than having a forgiven life because it gives us both a presence and a future, And I've got another quote from Tom. He said, of all the gifts of grace that God gives, forgiveness is one of the most powerful. How can a holy God freely forgive people who deserve severe consequences? He can do this because none of his attributes operate in isolation from the others. Grace is the bridge that connects God's attributes of love and justice. And it's interesting. God has these four attributes, love, justice, power, and and wisdom. And But grace is that connecting tissue that makes them all work together. It, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And that brings us to the next point, the next scriptural description of God's grace. God's grace is abundant. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and 33. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon all of them. So you have this example in the very early church when they're sharing everything. God's, and you see the abundant grace. They were just so willing to take others' needs and, and be favorable to others instead of themselves. It's God's grace reflected through their human lives. God's unmerited favor helps us see how being unattached, I'm saying unattached, to this world's possessions opens us up to being able to possess spiritual abundance. You can't have spiritual abundance when you're focused on earthly abundance. It just doesn't work. And how sad it is that false teachings of the prosperity gospel is the exact opposite of what the true abundance of grace is. In Acts 4, it describes everyone making all of their possessions common property to share where needed. So after this discussion, I can see how God's grace is in a completely different category from the grace we show each other. God's grace is more comprehensive, more far-reaching, and best of all, unlimited. Yeah, you've got this incredible abundance here. But there's more. There, There are more descriptions in the New Testament. Next, God's grace is manifold, and that means many or, or various. 1 Peter 4, verses 8 through 10. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Good stewards of the manifold, of the various, of the diverse grace of God. God's unmerited favor provides us with differing gifts abilities, and talents that we're privileged to use as we serve one another. 
but the question is, if I'm given a, an ability or a talent, that's God saying, here, here's something for you. And I say, thank you. But if I don't use it, what have I done with God's grace? I've wasted it. God's grace demands action, always. All the talents, gifts, and abilities are part of the favor from God to use for witnessing the gospel. And we just have to look in-house for an example of this. Christian Questions started out over 25 years ago with, what, seven people in your house, Jonathan? Yeah. (laughs) It was a local radio program that reached just a very small area. Now we have over 55 volunteers that not only work on the podcast, it's research and all the corresponding support documents like the CQ Rewind show notes and study questions that you can get at ChristianQuestions.com, but also with the Christian Questions website and app and hundreds of YouTube videos and our children's ministry and so much more. And it's all because of God's grace. We appreciate that so much. Individual talents and abilities put to work because God has given them. And it's now, okay, what's in your hand? Let me go to work with what you've given me. It, it, it's an amazing thing. So God's grace is manifold. It's got, it's got diverse ways to apply it. And there's even more. God's grace through Jesus, and I love this one. God's grace through Jesus is sufficient. Second Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So Paul now understands and he he gets it. He changed his posture to the posture of acceptance. And that's a big deal. He changed himself to fit into God's grace. See, God's unmerited favor is exactly enough. Our job is to apply that, to apply that grace to our trials and our weaknesses and our perplexities and our temptations so we can find victory through Christ to God's glory. That's a powerful description to say that grace gives us exactly what we need. It gives us comfort to know that our trials have a purpose, they have a meaning, because often our greatest growth and wisdom comes from our most difficult experiences. We know God is selecting a bride class for Jesus, a church of the faithful, and we're being trained for that position. So I think of James 1, 2-4, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, and endurance has its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's sufficient. Exactly enough. And finally, our final example, this is not the last example in Scripture, but our final example for, for, for this podcast, God's grace is original. This, 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 is, this is fascinating. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. Be of a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, think about the timing of Peter's words when he said, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Soon, Rome would start feeding Christians to the lions. He was saying to them, God's grace is sufficient. Forget the suffering. God's got this. It needed to be said at the time to get them through the persecution for their eternal glory. For us today, Satan uses different tactics of suffering to uh, persecute us. 
Yeah, I really appreciate that phrase. The God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish. That allness is incredible. And here's another quick Tom quote. This suggests that not only that he's the author of grace, undeserved kindness, but also that he has an inexhaustible supply of good gifts to give to all who will receive them. He gives freely because we can't earn or repay it. Um, and he wants us to see and choose the better ways of living and the blessings that come from living that way. His purpose to give us this grace is to nudge us in the direction that will bring true happiness and satisfaction in life and back into a close relationship with him. So when we talk about the God of all grace, God invented grace. That's really what we're saying. God invented unmerited favor. His unmerited favor existed before every part of his creation because it was inherent in his character, as we've seen through all these descriptions. It is the origin of any and all acts of true favor on any level. They are inevitably any true act of unmerited favor that is righteous is a reflection of God, inevitably. Because it's his grace is ancient and tested and powerful, his favor will deliver. It can't help but not, because it comes from the God of everlasting. So, Jonathan, as we've looked at all these characteristics of God's grace, what do we have with God's abounding grace? Seeing these many characteristics of God's grace so broadly defined should make us pause and reflect. This grace, this gift, this favor is not only available to us, it is overflowingly accessible for the purpose of building us up in spiritual maturity so we can more clearly follow Jesus. Overflowingly acceptable. This gives us a sense of God's grace in a very big way. God's grace is so expansive and powerful. Having this mighty favor applied to us is an in it is an absolute recipe for deep humility. Now that we have seen the magnitude of God's grace in action, we need to know, what does God's grace do for us? Well, the first answer to this question is that God's grace will only do what we allow it to do for us in our lives. As massive and as powerful as His grace is, we, in our feeble human form, we hold the controls that determine its transformational capacity. We can choose to limit God's grace by dwelling on our own will, or we can choose to maximize His grace by letting go of our will and seeking His will instead. We have the controls in our hands. And this reminds me of Joshua 24, 15. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. We have to make a choice. And God's grace is abundant. But God's grace, remember, demands action. So you can have that abundant grace and not act on it. And guess what's going to happen to, your, to that abundant grace in your life? It's going to become scarce because you're not making good use of it. God's grace stimulates a process of change. And this is beautiful. It all begins... You know how it begins? It begins by just being like everybody else, being one in, in the crowd. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, we're actually going to go all the way uh, verse through verse 10, but we're going to take verses uh, 1 to 3 to begin. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature called of 
children of wrath, even as the rest. So basically, no one can boast. We were all selfish and sinful before we grabbed hold of God's gracious invitation to follow Jesus. And that phrase, we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh and of the mind, Paul's talking about himself. He literally, literally hunted down Christians when he was known as Saul of Tarsus. And look at this transformation only by God's grace. Colossians 3.16 says in part, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in wisdom, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This grace of God should put a song in our hearts. Knowing God is working out every detail of our life for his purposes and our blessing. God's grace keeps us singing in gratitude to God, even in time of extreme trials. Well, remember Paul and Silas sang hymns in their jail cell. That's right. Acts 16, 25. And that leads us to another mirror question. Do I act like a recipient of the greatest unmerited favor given to any human being of all creation? Or do I take all this for granted? Uh, that's a pretty important question. And, and you know, you, 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 Paul is showing us a comparison for what was to what can be. You, you, he, here's the thing. You'd never know that you live in squalor if you were born and raised in squalor and were never, ever given a comparison. Well, God's favor and mercy did give us a comparison. And this brings us to the next level of grace, of the grace-driven process of change, having access to God's mercy and his grace. So the Apostle Paul lived in the squalor, as Saul of Tarsus, of faulty Jewish thinking that said, destroy Christianity. The moment he was given a comparison— he followed that comparison, and then he opened himself to access to God's mercy and his grace. And this is shown to us in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We have three elements here, God's mercy, his love, and his grace. And we want to look at the connection between them and how they work together. So we could say that God is love, God has mercy, and God gives grace. So let's start. God is love. Jonathan, what does that mean? This means that his very nature is one that instinctively cares and gives in ways that cannot be reciprocated. So we talked about God's characteristics, the, the, the attributes of his character. Justice, wisdom, power, and love are the foundation of God's plan. God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus. God's justice required that humanity be ransomed from sin and death. God had the wisdom to provide this gift and the power to give it. There is nothing we could ever do to give back to him what he gave to us. God is love. God has mercy. Now, we know that God also gives or shows mercy, but we want to contrast this with grace. So what does God has mercy mean? God's mercy in his undeserved compassion that could be declared towards someone who deserves negative consequences. So his mercy brings relief from the pain or suffering that someone may deserve. God's mercy removes consequences. God gives grace. God's grace is unmerited favor that lifts someone into a position of privilege that was previously unattainable. And we've already mentioned the Apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus did not earn the title of the 12th Apostle. God's grace opened that door. 
God's love had provided Jesus as the ransom, and God saw who Saul of Tarsus could be given truth to follow. And that we know, so Saul of Tarsus became the apostle Paul. So let's go back over these three points. God is love, God has mercy, God gives grace. God's love is the foundation. It is unchangeable. He sent Jesus as proof. God's mercy is applied to us through Jesus' ransom. He paid the price for Adam's sin and our sin. And God's grace is applied to us through Jesus' resurrection. Because he lives, we will live with him. So as we look at these three pieces, God's love, God's mercy, and God's grace, many times we look at mercy and grace and we get them confused and we almost use them interchangeably. There's a distinct difference. Mercy is to not apply consequence to something negative. And that's why we say his mercy is applied through the ransom. God is not applying the consequence because Jesus paid the price. Grace is applied through Jesus' resurrection, and it's giving somebody a privilege, a a leg up. It's not keeping a consequence from them. It's giving them something positive. There are two aspects of the same goodness of God in his plan for all of humanity. So, In Ephesians 2, Paul continues to explain the results of these things being applied to our lives. This brings us to the final level of God's grace and this process of change. Now, remember the first level, just being one in the crowd. Second, having access to God's mercy and his grace. And now we come to living for Christ and being granted eternal life. Let's reread Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 to get the context and then add 6 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now, listen carefully, because here's the result. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The phrase, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, Who deserves that? (laughs) No one. And yet here we are. So this opportunity to follow Christ and be seated in the heavenly places is only because of the gift of God's unmerited favor, his grace. What a privilege. We want to live up to the amount and the degree of grace that we've been given. And he shows the world the surpassing riches of his grace. This is bigger than just us. All of mankind receives a resurrection because of Jesus paying the ransom price, 1 Timothy 2.6, a one-for-one offset price for an original sin. Romans 5.5-21 explains how original sin brought death. Jesus' sacrifice through grace brings exponential benefits, not just a price for Adam. One man's sins brought death. One man's offering for sin provides unceasing benefits. That's the enormity of grace. Not only does it give his faithful followers a heavenly reward, but God's grace will give the abundant, abundantly for resurrected mankind to learn the rehabilitation after the resurrection. So when we look at all of this, what we want to focus on is if we are Christians, 
we want to be part of that living for Christ and being granted heavenly eternal life. God's grace places us in a position of distinct favor right here, right now. The world gets their favor later, but we get it right here, right now. But his grace, as we mentioned before, never acts alone. It's always built upon love's foundation and usually has mercy as a co-laborer. So grace and mercy always seem to work together to fulfill God's plan. Let's get a little bit more personal with the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul verifies the elements of God's love, mercy, and grace, though he doesn't use those words. So this is going to be a description of the process. His point in these next verses will ultimately show his deep and personal experience with God's grace. This is personal. It gets, grace gets personal. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 11, and we'll, we'll stop a few times. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So the apostle is going through, here's how Jesus showed himself. He showed himself to here and there and to all of these different individuals. Now the apostle Paul shows us the transformative power of God's grace in his own personal experience. So all the experiences before had nothing to do with the Apostle Paul. Here's where he makes it personal. Jonathan, let's go to verses 8 and 9. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So he's making a, a comparison. All of those appearances of Jesus, they were all in a position of loving and honoring Jesus. I wasn't. I'm the least of all because at that same time, I'm persecuting. I'm hunting them down. I'm not doing things in a godly way. But here's his conclusion. Jonathan 10 and 11. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then I was, I or they so we preach, and so you believed. Paul's saying, of all people, God's grace changed me. And that same grace that changed him changes us. So do we respond with that same awe and reverence? God's grace should stimulate our faith and in turn make us more Christ-like. We become reflections of his grace so that we can reflect his grace to others. And one easy test from a practical standpoint to see if we're doing this is through our speech. Colossians tells us to let your speech always be with grace. Ephesians says, uh, good words will give grace to those who hear. So our words should be saturated with grace, kind, considerate, respectful, beneficial, uplifting. If we find we're being harsh, critical, complaining, gossipy, we aren't reflecting God's grace. And the Apostle Paul shows his deep, profound appreciation by saying, he applied it to me. That's an important aspect. We have to have that same sense. Jonathan, God's abounding grace, what do we have? When God grants us unmerited favor, he grants us his mercy and love as well. All of those accepting the call to follow Jesus and being granted God's spirit are in this class of highest privilege. God's grace does not stop there. 
It also addresses our individual needs and deficiencies. No matter how out of step we are with God's ways, His grace can rise us up to being a tool in His hand. So we may start as one of the crowd. We may start completely out of step. But if we pay attention to God's grace in our lives and respond and we act upon it, we can become a tool in the hand of God. I mean, you think about that. And folks, if that doesn't just just overwhelm you with, with, with praise and reverence, I don't know what will. God wants us working with and for Him. So with all that grace has to offer, it kind of feels like we may use this word too casually. Experiencing God's grace... It's a life changer. To live in the grace of God is to live in a very safe place. How do we continue to stay strong in grace and not falter? Being imperfect human beings, we all are prone to the disaster of divided thinking. We continually need to be guarded. Our hearts and minds must stay focused on the most important things. And when they stray, we need to be able to recognize it and readjust. There are two obvious ways to readjust, Jonathan, to answer your question. First is prayer, and second is being reminded of God's grace constantly. So we're going to talk about the idea, the, the, the challenge of falling down and, need, and the need for prayer. And in that challenge of falling down, we're going to look at an example of this divided thinking. Falling short of God's grace can bring us to a very sad state of being. And a divided way of thinking is a sad state of being, especially for one who calls themselves a Christian for us in this age. Let's look at this example of an Old Testament individual, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 to 16. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. After all we've discussed, this should make us take notice, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it may be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. As we remember Esau was the firstborn of Isaac and was therefore in a position of getting a more favorable inheritance. In a moment of hunger and weakness, he traded that advantage to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew, and he later blamed it all on Jacob. The lesson here is how nurturing a root of bitterness corrupts everything around it. And for more, please listen to episode 1212. It was called, Am I Too Bitter to Be Better? (laughs) At ChristianQuestions.com, the Christian Questions app, or your favorite podcast channel. And in Hebrews, it says, pursue peace with all men. Here's that allness again. If we don't pursue peace in our Christian lives, we come short of God's grace. And that's a choice. That's a choice. You said if we don't pursue peace, if we don't act in accordance with the the, the open door that God's grace gives us, then we end up with divided thinking. And that's what happened to Esau. He ended up in a divided life. He had something precious, and he sold it because it didn't mean so much to him. We don't want to be there. We all know the power of prayer. Okay, so you see the ability to fall. So now let's take a look at the power of prayer. Divided thinking draws us away from God and his grace as no man can serve two masters. Divided thinking. It's no accident that God's grace is pictured as the majesty of a throne where he hears our prayers. Now, folks, we're going to read Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, but pay 
very close attention. There is a magnificent picture of prayer here now that we've been studying and discussing grace that we want to make sure we capture. Jonathan, let's start with verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, think about this. This is being written to, to Hebrew Christians, and you know they're used to having the high priest that would mediate for them between them and, and God. And Paul is saying to these Hebrew Christians, you know what it's like to have a high priest here on earth. Our high priest, Jesus, has passed through the heavens. He's actually, he's actually with God. Think about how much more powerful that connection is. So because our high priest has got this incredible connection with God Almighty, let's hold fast to our faith. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So what it's saying is, and on top of the fact that he's with God, he understands us. He was a man. He knows what we go through. And so our high priest, who knows us so well, is with God. This, this, this paints the picture of the power of prayer. And now in verse 16, here's how it's described. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The throne of grace. Now, remember in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, hallowed be thy name. Well, when approaching God in prayer, we must show him reverence first. And the idea here is to come before the throne, this powerful, powerful position, the throne of grace, the throne of God's unmerited favor, because Jesus opens the door and says, here, because of me, you can be at this throne. Because we've already have God's grace through Jesus as our advocate, going before this majesty of the throne of grace is our personal privilege. Hold on. The majesty of the throne of grace is our personal privilege. So when we're riddled with weakness and failures, this, this majestic throne of grace can and will renew his grace in us. That's awesome. <clears throat> I think of the story of Queen Esther, who could have been put to death for even trying to approach the king on his throne. And here we see why we puny, sinful humans are even able to approach the throne. It's because it's a throne of grace. This isn't a physical chair. It's the monarchy itself, the royal power, and how grateful we are to serve a God whose very power is based on grace. In the Psalms, you see the word selah, which means to pause and consider. And this is a moment where you pause and consider what the throne of grace means now that we've put grace or attempted to put grace in its perspective. So prayer and grace are so, so important. Another way to keep us in order is to be constantly reminding ourselves of God's grace. Now, the Apostle Paul actually made that kind of easy. He always reminded everyone about God's grace. Let's just run through a small sampling of the Apostle Paul reminding us. Romans 1.7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, to the church of God which is at Corinth, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 2, 
to the Corinthians again, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 1, 2-3, to the Galatians, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 1 and 2, to the Ephesians, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Philippians 1, 1 and 2, to the Philippians, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 2, to the Colossians, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Rick, you want us to keep going? Because we can go on for a while. (laughs) I can see that. But see, this is a big point. So thank you. Romans 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and then some. Yeah, no, so he uh, often, when he's communicating to the churches, starts by extending grace and peace, and sometimes he closes with it, and it even appears in the middle. And in fact, in Ephesians 3, 7, and 8, he says his very ministry was a gift of God's grace. Why does Paul emphasize grace so much? Because he knew they were invited to stand on holy ground and did nothing to deserve that invitation. Exactly. Being right with God, receiving his grace, produces peace with God. Grace frees us from the burden of sin to enjoy a relationship with him. So again, it's an unbelievable privilege that we're even allowed, let alone encouraged, to approach the throne of grace. This is very humbling. Yes. So you have the reminders are always there. And folks, now when you read those reminders, pause and consider grace and think about what it really means and what it can mean in our lives. And think about, am I living up to the, the unbelievable merit and favor that I've been given? Now, Paul not only puts it at the beginning, at the end, and Julie, you mentioned, he, he reminds us of grace not only in formal ways, but also in very personal ways as well. Here's one example when he's, when he's writing to Timothy. This is the last letter that Paul writes before he is executed. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Well, we started out by talking about divided thinking. Well, here's a great example of Paul showing Timothy to avoid divided thinking. A soldier must be single-minded and not distracted by outside influences. And the Apostle Paul is telling him this because Paul will no longer be there as his guidance. Paul, as his mentor, is going to die. And so he's handing this off to Timothy, and he's saying, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Take it, make it your own, and respond to it. Act upon what that grace has given you. The, the results of God's grace are not just for the called out ones, and we touched on this earlier, but they're, uh, who, who follow Jesus now, they are for every man, woman, and child. Let's look at Romans 5, uh, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. When we look at the context in Romans 5, the word many here means all. Jesus' sacrifice covers everyone, all people. 
So, so much more did the grace of, the, uh, of God and the gift by the grace of the man Christ Jesus abound to the world, to everyone, Christian or not, we're all in this together. We've all been given the opportunity of God's unmerited favor through Jesus. Now look, there are many, there are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that expand and describe what God's grace will look like for the world of mankind. So we want to touch on just one of these prophecies as we are meditating on the incredible breadth of God's grace. Let's look at Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. And remember, this is about the world. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Well, no wonder God said he desired all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the culmination of his loving grace and its fulfillment. To God be the glory. It is. It's amazing. The culmination of God's grace, folks, is not with us. We're the beginning of his grace. The culmination is with the rest of the world. This is enormous. Please take God's grace and realize the magnitude of it. So let's let's put this all together. God's abounding grace. It sounds so simple when we say that God's grace is his unmerited favor. We need to realize, uh, what we re- need to realize is that God's grace changed history. By his grace, he sent Jesus to die for every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. By his grace, the disciples of Jesus are called to a heavenly calling. By his grace, he individually shapes us into faithful members of the body. And by his grace, the earth and all of humanity will be perfected for eternity. So God's grace is his unmerited favor. It's in its simplicity. It reveals the glory, honor, and reference due him. God's grace shows us God's character. It shows us his plan. Praise God forever for His grace. Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, what sins can never be forgiven? Talk to you next time.